0: What do you think of when you think of the year 1776? As Americans, our minds immediately go to the Declaration of Independence and the start of the American Revolution. And yet that year would prove significant for a whole host of other reasons as well, sparking movements, innovations, and events that still impact us in our day to day, sometimes in surprising ways. In fact, it's not an overstatement to say that understanding the year 1776 is essential to understanding the post-Christian West in which we all live. My guest is Andrew Wilson, and in our conversation, he explains why people in the West today, including you and me, are unique in the history of the world. He highlights why the idea of democracy was so transformative in the decades following the American Revolution, how the forces of industrialization changed the way people thought about the world and their place in it, and the complex ways that a Christian worldview both contributed to and confronted many of the key markers of Western thought over the past 200 years. Andrew Wilson serves as a teaching pastor at King's Church London and a columnist for Christianity Today. He's the author of several books, including Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West from Crossway. Let's get started. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway Podcast. Yeah, thanks
1: for having me. It's great to
0: be with you. So the title of your remarkable new book is Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. So I want to jump in with the main question in just a few sentences. How did the year 1776 actually create the post-Christian West? How did it, cult- how did it contribute to where we are today?
1: So the... The year 1776 has a whole bunch of remarkable developments taking place at the same time, which I think, that, and those those developments, I choose seven, and I think that those seven things are what is most distinctive about the modern world, and not just in its leaving behind of Christianity, but in our economic, technological, globalized, rich, democratic, post-Christian kind of world, that the developments which brought us to that point, and I break back out seven, globalization, the enlightenment, industrialization, enrichment, democracy, post-Christianity, and romanticism. And those are big words, and we can unpack that a bit in this conversation. But those seven developments all go back in some way to key events in 1776, which is like one of those sort of, it's like a fulcrum or like a pivot moment in the history of the West where a whole bunch of sudden change, much of which has been hundreds of years in the making of course, but there are key events in this year through which I think you can tell a fascinating story about how all seven of those changes happened. Mm. And in a sense therefore give people some sense of why the West is now the way it is, not just in the ideas we have, but in the religious beliefs we do or don't hold the practices we have the technology we have the money we have and so on political systems and so I think in that sense 1776 made the post-Christian West in the sense that it had within it these seven events which lead to the kind of world we're in now and that make us so different from many other societies both in the past and today
0: so, so that's the so, short version so the year is it's not not that everything started and was fully no, encapsulated no in history one doesn't year. work like that right so right. You,
1: you, things don't come out of nowhere they, you, ever I mean if someone says, if I'd said, oh, yes, this year out of nowhere makes it, I'd be lying. That's obviously not true. But yes, it's a sort of, it's a, but it is a great year through which to see a lot of these changes happening in miniature. And so the one that would be most familiar to people, the American Revolution, obviously the ideas, the things that lead people to say, we hold these truths to be self evident, they, they don't come out of nowhere in that. It's not like someone thinks of them yeah. in January and For the writes to them. the first time why. in that year. No, of course not. But nevertheless, this year was an incredibly important one in people actually boiling them down, expressing them, fighting a war over them, and eventually establishing a nation on them. And I think that the same is true of other changes. The invention of the steam engine, James Watt's steam engine in 1776, doesn't come out of nowhere. People have tried to, they've discovered that vacuums can make power, and then they've discovered how to maybe transfer the heat within the engine to make it more efficient. But the development of Watt's steam engine in 1776 is a huge... Leap forward mm-hmm. in, and re- for many would be like a, a launch pad for the industrial revolution. Yeah, it sets
0: a trajectory, yeah, that then goes um, all the way to today. And that's,
1: and I think all seven changes, there is an equivalent yeah. of that,
0: which is the argument I'm making. So before we get into then those those actual changes, the seven things that you highlight, I, I want to take a, a bit of a step back, and let's camp out on the study of history itself, because mm. I think for many Christians, they might be history buffs, they might love this, that they're, they're ready, they're ready to read your book, they're ready to hear this conversation, but for others. History kind of, when they think about the study of history, they think back to maybe a high school class they had where they were just bored out of their mind. Yes. So what would be your appeal to (laughs) to Christians, why all Christians to some extent should care about history Mm -hmm. and and why it matters for us?
1: So I think the short answer is that we all have a way of telling the story of the past and therefore we all do history. The question is whether we do it well or badly. That's the short version. The, The slightly longer version would be, That, let's say, a a a random person living in my so I have there's a there's a thousand year old castle a few miles from my house. I know that's not common in America. (laughs) In fact, it's probably that's that's maybe an understatement, completely (laughs) unique in America. But as in when I go to Starbucks with my daughter, I drive past a thousand year old castle. Now, when people tore it, they—you can just—they immediately start using language like, "Oh wow, that has been so weird to live in the Dark Ages," and you quickly get this sense that in the old days, people maybe had sort of—they were all playing green sleeves on the flute, and they were (laughs) sitting around eating chicken legs and then turnips. And then dying of plague and burning witches and it, they have a narrative. It's a wrong one in yeah. important ways and they don't realize that actually castles were an incredibly important technological innovation. They don't realize that society was in the period they're talking about was forming universities and building cathedrals. and they, So they, they don't see the whole story but they have a story. And so do you, and so do we all. And the question is whether or not it's valid or accurate. And that's particularly important for the church because if you don't have an accurate telling of history, it's far too easy to flatten it into a very simplistic heroes and villains story on both sides. So the progressive version of that story might go something like, In the past, Christians ruled the world, they told everyone what to believe, they killed gays, they killed women, they banned anyone from doing what they wanted, and it was awful, and therefore we mustn't go back there. And so a show like The Handmaid's Tale would be a modern version of an apocalyptic
0: reading of that story. Society is maturing out of this. Yeah, we've
1: grown out of it, and now we're allowed to believe what we think, we can love who you want, all that stuff. That's the way the story is told. There's a conservative version too, which is in the past, America was a great nation and we had built it on Christian values and we had this and that, but over time, the sort of, the lefties have come in and taken over and suppressed Christianity and now banned us from thinking what, and they're coming after your kids. And to be honest, there might be some degrees of truth in either of those stories, yeah. but that's a very thin story and it's not a very good one for Christians to believe either of them because underneath it, we have to stand back and say, no, the, some, the, the good and the bad are mingled together the idealistic developments of in what we think and the material developments of what we, how we practice, what we do, what the world looks like, what technology we have, are connected and they feed into each other. And developments that now we're trying to make sense of and I, I use the example of the sort of the development in trans rights and tra- tra- being able to change sex or change gender is a product of technology mm. as well as a product of ideas. And the ideas, some of them come from Christianity and some of them come from absolutely not Christianity. And th- the, the, this kind of practice we have now, people going, where's this coming from? What's yeah. going on is the result of a number of different historical developments and figuring out what they are can help us not overreact or freak out or whatever to those things and instead make sense of what's going on and why.
0: Yeah. So it's just more complex than we often want to make it out to be.
1: It is, but I don't like saying that because that makes it, say, oh, everything's more complicated. <laughs> of
0: course it is. It is,
1: But I actually think it's not a particularly complicated story. I just think it's one with a number
0: of threads to it. Yeah. And I just think it's a more interesting story as well. So we're currently living in a time when history, and I think not so much the questions of what happened, but questions of why it happened and what it means today, they're often questions that are incredibly contested. And I think there's lots of examples of this where people are looking back at history and kind of claiming that maybe what we've been taught, the simplistic stories that we've been told are misleading at best, if not downright false and uh, violent at worst, and I think of I mean the best example of this in recent years was uh, the New York Times 1619 project, yeah. which kind of looked at the founding of America through a very different lens, yeah. and then and traced that throughout the rest of American history. What do you make of that characteristic of how history is often done today, and how do you think, how did you think about your own book in light of that?
1: Yeah, really good question. I think. So to some degree, this goes back to what we were just talking about, that that his, we're all going to do history a particular way. And obviously that particular project was a very self con- in some ways, commendably honest attempt to go, we're going to actually use history to completely reframe a contemporary debate. And I say commendably honest because although I don't, I don't agree with many of the presuppositions of that project and I think at a historical level there are some serious problems with it but I actually think there's something quite valuable about someone being very honest and saying Mm -hmm. we are telling the story this way because we want to see the following
0: changes today. Because we all tell history a certain way. Exactly.
1: And the person who objects to it and goes no actually the true founding is 1776 and we need to really, let's try and get rid of that, you know, the sort of the dark side of the the slave origins of our state and all that sort of stuff because that's just embarrassing and that makes the founding fathers look really bad and it makes our nation look less legitimate. They're also doing history to try and get a modern result and it might be just as invalid as a reading of what actually happened. Mm. And so I think there's something commendable about saying, I've got some presuppositions here. I think we're doing, that doesn't mean every view is as bad as every other view. It just means that you say, I'm being honest about the thing I'm interested in and where why I'm telling this story. Yeah. But then can go back and say there are some readings of these sources that are more or less valid than others and you can do a serious study in the life of, I don't know, Cotton Mather or Jonathan Edwards or Thomas Jefferson or Ben Franklin and go, you can reconstruct what they believed from their letters and the things they did and said and and say, "This this is a complicated person. And if we're looking at the issue of slavery, say, and these are the things that they did and said, and there's an inconsistency here. And they seem to seriously have believed that and nevertheless done this. And we have to make sense of why that would be true. And you get that in George Marsden or Thomas Kidd or these historians who try and drill into some of these Mm. guys and go, what's going on there? How can someone possibly own this many slaves while saying all people are created equal? And actually, but history, it requires us to do that and to really dig into the complexities of real people, just like you and I have some inconsistent, I can rail against you know, greed and materialism, and then I can go to Starbucks and buy things, and I don't find it inconsistent. But someone in a thousand years' time might think, what are you doing? How does that
0: work? That's the most frustrating thing about reading history sometimes, is you find, whether it's a a certain narrative from the left or from the right, that there is this tendency to flatten inconsistencies in people. We want to push aside the things that don't fit our narrative. We want to embrace just kind of the clean picture of people. But that, yeah. it isn't true to how we experience life today and the friends that we have, the relationships that we have with people we know best. We know that all of us are inconsistent and flawed in many different ways.
1: Yeah, we do. And, and it's not just that we're flawed. It's that probably we are not as aware as we might be of the ways in which someone 100 years hence will think about what we've done mm. as inconsistent with, it, because everyone's doing it. Because So when you live in a society where everybody thinks a certain way about, I don't know, our attitude to the natural world, it's quite conceivable that my great-great-grandchildren will find the fact that I ate bacon for breakfast this morning completely inconceivable and in- inhumane. How we had a you? whole
0: conversation about we, we've already different about types bacon. of bacon. But,
1: but they might, like they might go, this idea of eating, it, of killing an animal in order to eat it is just unthinkably... New. But, of course, to me, it doesn't seem like that for, I hope, grounded theological reasons, but partly because I'm in a society where it is very normal mm. to eat, eat meat and eat pig. Whereas, of course, if I was... In a different culture, I would not have touched eating pigs. So yes. That and I think I'm not comparing eating bacon with slavery, of course. What I'm saying is, but they are. But what happens is, our society teaches us to think of certain beliefs as acceptable simply because everyone else thinks they are, mm. and therefore we don't think critically about the extent to which we might have something in common with people in the past. That we're just being f- the whole debate's being framed by an assumption in our culture that certain things are okay and certain things are not, and that that. I think it's quite an important thing to bring to the table and be honest and aware about as we're reading history.
0: Yeah. So you structure your book around an acronym, WEIRDER. Yeah. Uh, where did you get that? And I wonder if you can just walk us through briefly what each letter stands for.
1: So, I'd, yeah, so I'll start with what it is. So, so WEIRDER, in my use of it, use of it uh, stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, Democratic, Ex-Christian, and Romantic. And that describes the seven developments I mentioned earlier, or or the the fruit of those seven developments in the modern world. I got the first five, weird, they're actually now being used in psychological papers and books and so on, because it uh, developed by a a psychologist in, um, in America, who came up with you know Western-educated, industrialized, rich, democratic as a way of describing modern people and uh, modern people in the West and what makes us distinctive from many others mm. in the world today.
0: In like the global South, perhaps? In, in the
1: global and and nearly everywhere, actually, mm. outside of what we think of the West. So there might be a billion people in the West and seven billion who are not. Most of those seven billion yeah. are not to the same degree that we are, weird in those ways. And they came up with it, he came up with it, and others have picked it up because... They found that they were doing psychology experiments on American students because they had plenty of time, no money, and were hanging around near psychologically, psychology research faculties. And as a result, re- the findings they got from studying them, they realized were completely out of step with the way most people in the world thought. But mm. they assumed they were just normal. And so it's a good way of saying these, these people, we are weird. By, by virtue of having this conversation in the way we are in the room we are, we're very unusual relative to most people. But then I've added ex-Christian and romantic because those two developments are very interesting to me, and they refer not just to the sort of material and political conditions that people live in, W-E-I-R-D, but to the ideas and religious convictions people hold, which I think are a very important part of who we are. Mm. And so I've slightly expanded their acronym to have seven, letters, not five.
0: Yeah, so interesting. And obviously, we can't get into all of them in this conversation. Your book, as you said, you explore each of these in various chapters, and you you dig into so many details so many specific individuals and events and circumstances and ideas and inventions and uh, you really kind of flesh out each of these in a really vibrant way uh, it's one Thank of the you. most incredible things kind about of you to the say book so. i think for Evangelical Christians, conservative Christians, oftentimes the way we can tell our own history, the history of Christianity, is through the lens of ideas. We think in terms of ideas. That's like the primary lens through which we think about why decisions were made by certain people, what motivated people. And yet you in this chapter, you kind of want to draw out the more material impetuses for the way that the world has changed and the way that how we've become the people that we are today, even how we think and what we believe today uh, sometimes has material causes. Unpack that a little bit more for us. Is that an intentional maybe correction to the way that we sometimes think?
1: Yes, I'm definitely trying to do that. I think... You're absolutely right. Your diagnosis, I think, is bang on of the way that we were generally. I think probably because we we know the power of the gospel to change somebody, mm. and that's so central to us, and the power of the Word of God that the, that we think in the realm of ideas. That's ultimately how people change, and that's there's a lot of a lot of validity to that. But I think we have to, in telling an honest account of how we got to where we are and what we believe, we we have to include within our story the material forces that make us much more likely to live and behave in certain ways and understand the connection between those material factors and the ideas and the almost the symbiosis the way they they feed off one another it's not one or one or the other so actually we just go take the example of slavery this would be be a good a good one that one of the reasons why slavery became so established in then the parts of the what we now think of as the west as it did is because of its because of material factors like the invention mm. of a, a, a cotton gin or whatever, yeah. which meant that someone could make an awful lot of money out of extorting other people, oppressing yeah. them and forcing them to or work Or even the, the
0: climate of the South where... Indeed,
1: it's it's very, very hot. Certain things grow. No one wants to do the work. And there are inventions which mean we can make an awful lot of money out of it. Mm. And in, in, And in Britain, there are factories that are turning that cotton into clothes and making even more money out of it. And so a lot of people have a financial stake in slavery. But similarly, abolitionism in part, and the fact that we now find slavery so abhorrent is also partly a result of technological factors because the growth of what machines were able to do in the end meant that sort of kind of forced labour did didn't actually, wasn't going to generate as much revenue as building machines and the capitalists north in the end won the Civil War in part because of its material power. So it's actually, a, both the case for and against slavery are bound up. They're not reducible to it, and it would be very patronizing to abolitionists everywhere to say that was the whole story. Of course it isn't. But I I love the line of Upton Sinclair in his book where he says it's very difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon him not understanding it. Mm. And I think we just have to be mindful of the fact that people's livelihoods are baked into their material circumstances, and that shapes the ideas they have, the things we regard as possible. I think similar things are true of the way even now that we would say we're a very individualistic society, and you could tell that story through the lens of the um, Christianity's influence in thinking about ourselves as individuals, you could talk about democratic values and political systems you could talk about this of romanticism as I do in the book and the ideals of the self and that sort of thing but you also would have to tell it through the story of the invention of the car and the invention of the smartphone and the fact that it's possible for us to live in a property in which we're not dependent on multiple other human beings to get through the day and the fact that we can trade with people without even needing to see them let alone Mm. trust them and so many many we could use countless examples so yeah integrating the material the marxist account in some ways of history
0: that's what i was going to ask is i think some people could listen to this more conservative types can say man this sounds a lot like marxism it sounds like you're reducing uh, our life down to these material forces, uh, to the economic economic forces, uh, so. What would be your, your pushback against that concern? <laughs> I
1: don't know whether I'd push back. I think I might say well, I, I think I would say I think Marx was right about a bunch of stuff. I mm. think actually that in, in if we throw the baby out with the bathwater, we just we become the, the mirror image of what Marx was doing, which is to say actually ideas are what really brings change. And I and I think of course they do. It's that's the fusion of the two. Mm. So I'm not reducing everybody I'm certainly not a determinist. I don't don't believe that economic factors almost inevitably make history go a certain way and i think
0: Marx people still is, make choices people, people make, still people have make beliefs it all, yeah
1: and and of course one of the things i do in the book and you could see this even just that marx's analysis of what would happen to the west has been proved utterly wrong so i'm not a marxist in that sense but i think that marx's account of the importance of economic and factors and the fact that the, the famous image Brodel used of the of the ocean, where you've got the sort of bubbles and the froth and the waves on the surface, and then you've got the sort of the tides coming in and out in the middle, and then you've got the deep ocean currents that change the weather at the bottom, that actually those deep ocean currents are forces like industrialization or economic growth which make a much larger difference to the way we live now mm. than who's in power this year, or who's just released an album. And those things shape it too, but we need to see, need read history at all three layers, and I think that's what I'm appealing for. So if I just use one example of where the idea is, I, one of the p- points I make in the book, and I've talked about since, is for all that we could say the American Revolution succeeded in part because of the wealth I mean, you, the wealth of America. It wouldn't have yeah. worked if the country the, had- The been. natural resources right. available it to us. Right, it wouldn't have worked, and a, a, an awful lot of land, and And people adjacent to the American settlers who did not have the same technological
0: advantages. Couldn't resist. Right.
1: So there's material factors, but there are also human choices. If George Washington had not transitioned power in the way that he did, which he did for reasons of conviction, not just material benefit, the American experiment might well have imploded. Hmm. Uh, Like all the others at the time basically did. The French Revolution. And if that is what had happened, if Thomas Paine and Jefferson had not been counterbalanced by the impulses of John Adams or you know and other thinkers who are more sort of conservative and more pragmatic and a bit more skeptical about human nature America might have turned into France and at that point I mean that might have been you know they might have had better cheese um, but at (laughs) the same time you probably wouldn't have had the same state and that is because of a, a handful of choices made by a very small number of individuals so I definitely believe that changes history too but I just think in America Probably, and in the West as a whole, we generally narrate the ideal story Mm. much more than the material one, which is partly what my book's trying to help redress.
0: Yeah. Uh, This whole topic makes me think of another book that Crossway published recently, which you actually endorsed called Digital Liturgies by Mm. Samuel James. And in that book, he makes a case for the ways in which recent digital technologies can shape and form us, even spiritually, cultivating certain habits or ways of thinking about ourselves and the world and even God. And it just strikes me that that is we can kind of sometimes see the importance of these technological or material forces on our lives in certain categories, maybe technology or social media. Yeah. We, we are used to talking about that, but sometimes these broader forces, it's a little more foreign to us.
1: It is because we don't generally notice the, the things which have not changed in our living memory. So whereas we would see social media, I, mean, I don't know how old you are, but I'm, 40, I'm about 45 in a few days' 36. Time. So for me, the transition to, I remember the world before social media, and I've seen how it's changed in, in my lifetime, whereas the the car is a given to me, mm-hmm. unless I'm very careful. I have to think, this has always be, as it was in the beginning, tis now and ever shall be world without end. And I have to realize, no, that has dramatically changed the way a, a church works. The, the telegraph, or the fact that you're able to communicate with someone in another country without meeting them, ever. That is, that's, that development has, has Made me mm. more that a little bit more likely every time it happens to think of myself as a slightly disembodied thing yeah. and to think of myself in a slightly more Gnostic way than I should. And that's, but I probably only noticed the changes that happen within my own lifetime.
0: Yeah. And that's why history is so valuable because it kind of allows us to transcend our own finitude a little bit, our, our own limits in terms of even the scope of our lives and actually get a sense of these big changes that have happened.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, the very fact that people listening to this are not physically present to hear my voice is likely to make... I feel like I'm closer to the person listening to this or to you Mm. than I actually am. And that kind of thing makes people think about relationships and churches and families in subtly different ways, particularly when those developments are amalgamated over many, many years. And so, yeah, it can be helpful to stand back and say, this is not how, even today, how most people live their daily lives. They might have phones, but their, their wider sense of community is much more embedded in bodies and places and limitations than ours is. In a way, of course, I, I would say oh, it's almost the opposite of what you just said about transcending finitude. Re- reading history reminds us of that finitude mm. because it says that the sense you have of being able to transcend your finitude is an illusion created by technology that makes you feel like you're doing it when yeah. actually you're not. So I think it can be helpful you know, if you almost put someone back in a peasant village in the 14th century and say, right, okay, what job are you going to do? do? You think, well, there's only one thing to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... I'm going to farm, I'm going to grow some wheat, I'm going to own an animal, I'm going to feed my family, and suddenly your sense of destiny and ambition and Mm. empowerment would disappear, not because the ideas have gone anywhere, but because the the material factors have changed.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about another uh, topic that you hit on in the book that is uh, near and dear to us as Americans, and that's democracy. Uh, We just democracy is one of those assumptions that we just kind of have because that's all we've known. And it is so close to the center of the American ideal of what we view as central to what it means to be an American and to live even in the world more broadly. Uh, And in the book that in 1775, a year before the American Revolution, there were no democracies in the world. However, after America and in particular, Washington's decision to step down, and to cede power to the next generation, so to speak. Uh, we started to see democracies pop up all over the world. And now even even uh, less than democratic countries like a North Korea will, will stick democracy, democratic in their name, almost as a hat tip to the, the importance of the idea, even if they're not actually living it out. Unpack that a little bit more in the way that democracy became a really important force.
1: Yeah, so I think what's compelling about American democracy in the history of the last 250 years, is not the fact that every country has become democratic, or even the fact that there was no democratic form of government before it, because there were, there were lots of experiments in consensus-based consensus decision making in, you know, in ancient Athens, in you know, in actually in parts of medieval Europe, in all sorts of city states that operated a bit like that, in parts of what we now think of as Latin America, in some parts of Africa. So there's lots of precursors to it, but the distinctiveness of the American model is that people now think of both that the government is based on the consent of the individual members who who share it. And obviously that who counts has been a massive part of the American story. Mm. You know, it it wasn't anywhere near a majority of the people. Who gets that voice. Right. But nevertheless, the sense that governments are based on consent and that uh, over time that individuals get to choose, both of those assumptions, which are integral to the way that your government functions, have become deeply embedded in Western culture, even when people aren't talking about politics. So the idea that I might have a voice to give the boot to the president of a company who did something that I thought was scandalous, and that if I was a shareholder, I ought to be able to get rid of them, that their leadership is not a given. It's something that I have a voice in. Mm. I, can have, I have a say, it's based on my consent, Yeah. that that would be true in my church, that would be true in, inconceivably even in a family, and in institutions which historically were never remotely democratic, but we now assume institutions are accountable to the individual choices of their constituent members and that those members if they don't like what the leader or leadership is doing can give them the boots those assumptions i think are the really long-lasting legacy of american democracy because it's not just about a system of government it's the fact that the whole society is almost powered by choice and of course consumerism Mm. is just an extension of that into the commercial sphere um so, but we see
0: authority as, as fundamentally a, a function of the majority. We, yeah, we
1: do, and we see it as therefore – but but even then, if the majority were all to, to vote for something um, or all, were all to affirm something in something like a referendum, which is in my – in our nation recently was obviously a big – couple of huge <laughs> kerfuffles yeah. about that that actually you end up almost posing a moral problem for politicians because they say well we've been elected in this democratic system and we think the people should choose to do X but the people when actually all polled very narrowly voted to do Y but now we who've been put here in charge have to implement their decision even though we don't agree with it and that causes problems for seven or eight years because where exactly does the democratic legitimacy lie mm. and so the whole culture is shaped by this belief that each individual has a choice to make and again, we now almost think that that is just staringly obvious. Yeah. How else would you do it? But even as Christians,
0: we can almost assume like ah, that as American Christians, conservatives, we can almost think it's biblical. Like, is there a Bible verse somewhere that talks about this? It's just so it's so assumed. Yeah, it is. And that's particularly true if you're a Baptist, I expect.
1: because <laughs> because genuinely, I think even that there, that there is different kinds of church polity are more or less likely to. Yeah. almost. And I think one of the reasons why even the Baptistic church government appeals to many people, and I, I'm a credo Baptist myself, yeah. but I think I also have to be honest, that way of governing a church a appeals to people today, yes, almost in la- in large part, because it yeah. feels intuitively it obvious fits. that that's how we should do things. Yeah whether or not it was in the Bible. And mm. obviously we could have that debate on another day. I'm sure yeah. many do. But I think that's, it's just worth being aware of that factor. And so this is a, one of the reasons why I feel, of course I should be able to have a say in the running of this institution of which I'm a part. Mm. But that's not the way, that's not the way that the, the reformers would have thought about it. It's not the way people in the 12th century would have thought about it.
0: So, so let's take this then as an, uh, an illustration of how do we then approach these kinds of movements from a Christian perspective. So when you think about democracy and the democratic impulse that's inside all of us as Western believers, uh, how do we connect that with scripture and with our faith and with theology, Christian theology? Is there a connection there or would you kind of want to keep those separated and say, you know, this is something that's happening. It's not really right or wrong. It's not biblical or unbiblical. It's just kind of, it's thing and we need to make sure we don't conflate that with biblical Christianity.
1: Yeah, I think it depends I think there are situations in which I would say both of those things. There are situations where I would say this this is morally neutral. It's not right or wrong. We just need to be aware that it is the case. And then there are other situations where I think I would say this may not be morally neutral and everyone does it anyway. Hmm. And therefore we have to ask some hard questions of our assumptions here, and we have to make sure that the fact that it is almost universal in the culture we live in does not make us blind to
0: a biblical critique of it. And, you know, racism, white supremacy would be a great so that example would be a, of that. that.
1: That's a really good example, because you can go back to, say, in your country, the obvious example would be African Americans. In Europe, uh, perhaps a, a more obvious example, say, from the 30s or 40s, would be attitude toward Jews, which... We generally think of as being as something that is sort of a very angry, nasty minority hated Jews, and the rest of us were all good citizens. Mm. Which, no doubt, is there's analogies to the way we think about that with race in America as well. But actually, that's not the, that's not the history at all. The it was vast, more prevalent, very prevalent. The vast majority, you and I, would probably have been anti-Semitic mm. if we lived in most European countries in the 1930s, to, pro, not to the degree that the Nazis were, but it, to it's uh, in, in the a culture. It's just the degree. air, it's just the way people are. Mm. And, of course, that's e- much easier to see when you see the terrible devastation that it wreaks. But, of course, the question that that should always raise is, so what are the things like that now that we are living in? That, And, of course, there's plenty of people with suggested candidates for what those things might be that we just assume are okay. And, to me, history helps there because it, it raises our awareness partly of how the individuals back in the past came to the conclusions they did and did what they did. But it also helps us realize the chances of me not having anything like that in my world are pretty low. Yeah. And therefore, I think for Christians, it can be a very useful tool in just reading the signs of the times, appraising our own moment and say, okay, this level of... is for Have we baptised greed, would be an obvious one, to the extent that we no longer see it as even an immoral evil and don't really have a framework for it because if people weren't greedy, the economic growth of our country wouldn't continue. How does that then, uh, at that point, am I back to the Upton Sinclair quote? Am I now. Unable to see it because my salary depends on me not being able to see it. Right, right. And there could be many other examples we could consider. So I think it's a, I think as Christians, we, it's not to say every development is morally neutral. It's just to say we have to ask the question of whether they are and try and remove ourselves from the fact that we require it and assume it in our culture mm. to be able to ask that question in the first place.
0: Yeah. Near the end of the book, you quote historian David Hempton, who writes, Christianity was sometimes at war with modernity and sometimes was its midwife and i think that really succinctly captures the tension that we can feel as christians as we look at the world around us whether it's the rise of democracy around the world or industrialization which has lifted millions of people out of poverty yeah. and or, or other facets of this weirder acronym that you've that you've written about i don't think you'll find many of us who would say i want to go back in time before these things happen right we don't we don't want to undo all the progress and yet we can also we know that some of these same forces have contributed to many social ills, many bad things about our culture today. And so how do you make sense of that tension in your own mind, that, that some of the things that this weirder world has produced are things that we would celebrate as Christians, distinctly as believers, but many of them, the same forces produce things that are really antithetical to our faith?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very basic feature of the, of the world. God made, isn't it? The, you have you know beautiful garden, in comes a snake. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like you know wheat that's growing. And then someone comes in and sows tares among them. And he said, we call them, what, do we rip it all up? No, 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 because then you'll damage the wheat. No, you, you let them both grow. And then at the judgment, they'll come in and be mm. separated. And I think that dynamic, which obviously is talking about people in the kingdom, in Jesus's story, but that dynamic of wheat and tares growing together, is, is applicable to two things that are very important in this conversation one is to almost new developments which have this good outcome and this bad outcome and how do you separate them when you can't but also to individuals as we've been talking about so you think well no this this motive this huh? how do you make sense of George Whitfield's response to slavery, how do you make sense of, and any number of people we could go, some of the people I even commend and lift up in the book uh, as Christian responses, but then how do you make sense of the fact that they then did this over here, Mm. that actually that wheat and tares, we should be expecting that, and that our anthropology is like that, and that our understanding of historical developments is as well. So with economic and industrial growth would be is the obvious example to use, we have to see that many of the things that we really want from the great breakthroughs of this kind of period inextricably related to many of the developments we didn't want and the fact that Christianity is harder to practice and families have got smaller, and people are less religious than they were is driven by many of the same forces that brought us longer life expectancy and greater economic prosperity and you probably you couldn't undo them even if you wanted to, mm. but e- even if it were somehow possible to do it, sh- should you well i don 't know how, how many you know how many hospitals compensate for hiroshima and all those sorts of moral questions you have yeah. to ask you say well, in the industrial developments that led to this also led to that and We are not in a position to play God and separate them from one another. But I think being able to see the, yeah, the word you used earlier, the complexity of how those things are related and how they are related even in a human person is an important part of doing history well and thinking wisely about many of the trade-offs you have to make in a modern society.
0: Mm. So I think it goes without saying that many conservative Christians today, theologically conservative Christians, probably feel at times anxious about the future, anxious about our place in a post-Christian world or a post-secular world, as you prefer to say. Um, and we kind of wonder, where is all this gonna go? Uh, will we increasingly feel out of step uh, from the broader society around us? I wonder if you can put on your prophet's hat a little bit and you've, you've looked at the history of the world since 1776, uh, going back before then, but what do you see in the future? What's next? Yeah, I don't really have a prophet's hat,
1: or if I do, it doesn't work very well. <laughs> it's a little bit, a little bit random. I, so, I obviously I don't know. Clearly, that's that goes without saying. But I think some of the questions that I I wrestle with are where some of the seven developments I've traced in this book, where they go when their limitations are exposed. So, industrialization, the obvious challenge, obvious things would be sort of the environmental pressures, yeah. right? So. When, and obviously your country and my country are in different places on, and a Christian in my country and a Christian in yours is probably in different places on, what sort of obligations. Christians have with respect to the natural world, in part because of geogra- geographical factors and how mm-hmm. big your country is and lots of things. But that would be an obvious, where industrialization goes, does this go backwards now?
0: Or d-
1: is do you actually reach a point where you can sustain this level of economic And that's,
0: that's probably true for all the different- uh, Exactly, it is ha- with
1: all of them. This is this is just a, one obvious one, but if it genuinely would mean that people get significantly poorer to make sure that we preserve the planet so that people in this country over here don't get flooded, would people make that decision or would people say in the end, that's your problem. You live there. We live here. and We're not going to giving up our whatever our hot showers or our packaged goods or whatever. But you get the same with all of the others. You get the same with economic growth. What what happens if economic growth, of course, is not an exponential curve, but it's more of an S curve. It comes up and then it flattens and Societies reach a particular point and maybe that's the point that Western nations are reaching at the moment since the financial crash where economic growth is a shadow of what it once was and it never gets back to Mm. the boom years after the war or whatever. What is the same thing would be true of Christianity? What happens if as a society moves past Christianity? The, the metaphysical foundations are eroded so much that people no longer take it as a given that all human beings do have equal levels of dignity. And you can see hints of that, of course, in debates about abortion, probably in the way a nation like Canada's gone on euthanasia. Mm. But you think, but where might, where might be next? What other groups of people in society might be deemed in, in, you know, insufficiently useful to society to be worthy of protection even if they are very vulnerable and weak? Does that eventually fade? And if so, what replaces it? So I don't know the answer to those questions at Mm -hmm. all, but they're the things that it makes me wonder. Even the Enlightenment, you could say well a lot of people would say we almost need to preserve a lot of the stuff of the enlightenment in the face of
0: we're already a sort of, transcending yeah the enlightenment. A, a sort yeah.
1: of a swing back against it say no this sort of insistence on reason and dis- knowing everything has led us to these sort of you know, almost enlightenment thinking and, and the, the rationalism is a very western project and what we really need is you know the, the silly examples you hear of people arguing no two plus two equals four is a western conceit and yeah. how, well, so does that is there ever a swing back there as well I don't know but those are the things I find fascinating but I'm not going Predict what happens in any of those
0: cases, but those are the questions that we should be asking ourselves and, and trying to think carefully. Maybe,
1: about. I'm, I'm, I, to be honest, I don't know whether they should be. I, I don't know whether those things create more anxiety. Mm. I I'm personally would be am not wired to speculate about the way the world be, will be in fifty years' time because I, I'm old enough already to know some of the speculations that people like that had twenty years ago have proved completely unfounded, and therefore I don't want to. I don't want to stake too much of my emotional energy on something that may never happen. And in the end, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow. I'll have enough worry of his own. You just deal with today. So I'm more wired that way. And I do think that understanding the past, in many ways, is more valuable than speculating about the future. But I also understand the universal impulse to, to wonder about tomorrow. And I think if we were going to do that, that's a few suggestions for some of the developments to consider Mm.
0: so I think as people can probably guess from this conversation your book is just so wide ranging uh, so broad in what you try to cover and then but you dig into very specific examples uh, and and illustrations even of these different forces in uh, in our world Uh, whether it's Captain James Cook's voyages to the South Seas or as you mentioned before the invention of the steam engine the publication of Adam Smith's seminal work the wealth of nations there's so much there uh, uh, at the end of the book, you, in the acknowledgements, you write, uh, "This is the most fun I've ever had writing a book." And so, I kind of led me to wonder, like, <laughs> what was it like to write this book? How did you approach such a broad topic, such an ambitious topic? How did you say organize? How did you take notes? What did that look like?
1: Yeah. So, so I wrote most of the most of the work for this was done during lockdown. And it, depending on where you're listening to this, your lockdown may may not have been, probably wasn't anything like as long or as. Draconian as ours was so I, there was a lot of time in that two-year period where I wasn't really allowed to do very much And then it, things would get lifted and then
0: most it, of us watched Netflix yeah, and, yeah. And, but,
1: but. <laughs> I think Sam Aubrey who I think is on one of well, a show that you've got either just soon before or soon after this I remember him saying yeah at the beginning of lockdown I, I, I said well, I'm just learn a foreign language and I just totally didn't so <laughs> that was my resolution and it totally failed and I was like Yeah, so no. So for me, it was incredibly helpful to i i hated a lot i was i'm really not a fan i'm an extrovert i love people i love physical contact i, I couldn't stand it but that one of the benefits was that i got a lot of time to work on this the process for me was I, I tend to buy paper books and so i just i bought a lot of books my church is very kind they they used to fund my ministry and so we give the royalties from things back to the church and the church allow me to buy books and other things um and so I, I actually bought a lot of physical books and I, I sat and I did what you do. I, I, I opened the book. I would write all over them. I would learn lots of things. I would try and turn it into a chapter. What I tried to do, because I'm telling seven stories at once, mm. that I would f- work very intensively on one of those seven stories at once. I didn't then try and integrate it. In fact, I didn't know what chapter seven was going to say until I got to starting chapter seven. So I'm not one of these guys who, I knew what it would be about, but I didn't, couldn't tell the story. I write in coffee shops. So basically I would, I'm an extrovert, so I need lots of noise and background. So when I could, when I wasn't locked down, I would write in a coffee shop. And when I was, I would go to a solitary office in a lonely building <laughs> like a biscuit tin in an industrial <laughs> estate where my office is and I would just sit surrounded by books and I would I would try and write. But I really in the intellectual fun I had writing the book was a massive joy. Yeah. And I think that's why I say it was so much fun, because there were so many ideas so many things I had no idea about that I really enjoyed discovering. And so many people I feel like I met who I would never and we haven't mentioned Johann Georg Harman, but I I would never have come across him really if I hadn't done this study and I'm so glad I did. Uh, and there's a lot of people like
0: that. Another living person that you met was uh, Tom Holland. Mm. And before everyone gets excited about uh, the <laughs> Spider-Man, Spider-Man no, no, the, other uh, the other Tom Holland, the, the famed historian who's written many books that feel a little bit similar to yeah. yours. Uh, his most recent book, Dominion, on the, how, how Christianity, the ideas of Christianity really shaped the modern West. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, what was that conversation like? What, what did he help you with as you approached this well, book? Well,
1: so his, the conversation in itself was... Well, I'd already by then. I'd already read him, and so we were just. Ch- I don't actually remember how the chat went. It was a lovely. We just met for a, a you know a, a beer in a pub. But the book was immensely important in my understanding of the ways in. Particularly, I think in the story I was telling a few moments ago about the way that some developments that we now think of as being a problem for Christian faith emerged from Christian faith, and that some of the things that we would now so. He uses the example, for instance, towards the end of his book about like the Beatles and the Summer of Love, and that that would now seem as being sexual revolution, everyone getting high, everyone sleeping with everyone. It wouldn't seem like a conservative Christian paradise at all, but he's saying that is inconceivable without Christianity, that that idea all you need is love is a, utterly Christian. No one in the ancient world mm. held love as the chief virtue. That was Jesus and Paul that said that, and then Augustine, and that's where we get this from. It's not from. It's not obvious to anyone except for Christianity, and the fact that we think that Caesar going and killing a million Gauls is bad, but he obviously thought it was good, and the fact that we think Jesus dying on a cross is good, but everyone at the time thought it was bad, that shaped the way we think about the weaker things of the world being shaming the strong. Yeah. And it shapes the way that we even back to you know, the fact that my kids go to a special needs school, the fact that people in my country pay taxes to fund the government to run a school for children who have profound disabilities so that they are cared for, even though there's no benefit Hmm. to most taxpayers of the fact that that school exists is an outgrowth of christian assumptions about human beings and the fact that my daughter the fact that she can't do things for herself means someone else should help her that's not how people thought even a thousand years ago certainly not three thousand years ago and tom's book and his wider thought has really he's not the only one saying that but he writes very well and has told that story in such a compelling way that Yeah, the chapter I wrote in the book about that is probably influenced more Mm. by him than maybe anyone else I read.
0: Yeah. All right. Final question, Andrew. Uh, As someone who wrote a book about the year 1776 and as a Brit, I have to ask you your thoughts on probably the most popular cultural phenomenon to incite an interest in the American founding in America, at least in the last decade or so. And that's the hit Broadway musical Hamilton. Yeah. And so my first question is, uh, how much did you hate it? And more seriously, are there any scenes from that musical that you would say capture any of the emphases of this book that you've written in a, maybe a helpful way?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, I absolutely adore Hampton. I imagine <laughs> it comes out of my ears. I, I went to see it. Actually, my wife took me to see the Broadway show, to do the West End version of the show on my 40th birthday. Oh, we wow. Sitting in St. James's Park in the sunshine on a deck chair uh, at the end of September, and then went into this, the theater and watched it. And I just was blown away. I love it. I think there are a number of. Uh, songs in the musical that that reflect the the story beautifully. Uh, I'm not. I won't pick. Two. I've got two I would particularly point to. But I think probably the most obvious one for what the story I'm telling is the story. There's uh, the song. It's quiet uptown where Hamilton's son. Spoiler alert has just been shot in a duel, <laughs> and Hamilton has cheated on his wife, and she has not sure. She won't forgive him, and she's burnt all his letters. And then there's this moment that the cathars- emotional catharsis really, and Hamilton begins to go back to church, and he. Realizes he starts to pray again, and he starts. It's to, it's
0: literally the most beautiful song I think in the whole. Very beautiful, musical.
1: and he effectively is a great example of the story I'm telling because Christianity in the musical is very in the background. You would never know watching Hamilton the difference between so how devout Eliza Hamilton was and how very much not devout Thomas Jefferson was. it just doesn't come across in the show. The, mm. the show is a two hour show about very complicated people. It's not the focus. Until this song, when suddenly it all comes out and you realize Hamilton, having lived this life without really centering his life on God at all, comes to a place where he realizes what I really need is grace. Mm. There's a grace too powerful to name, I need forgiveness, I need... And he, he realizes the consequences of what he's done and he's desperate for grace, both from God and from his wife and finds it, and it's very moving, and I think it's just a beautiful picture of the post-Christian West, which is that religion's in the background because everything, when everything's working, the economy's growing, we're not at war, everyone's, everyone's okay, but when a crisis hits, when Hurricane Katrina strikes, or when the, the Twin Towers come down, or whatever it might be in your immediate story, people, it's fascinating how quickly people go, I've got, something transcendent is needed to pull me through this. I need, either I've done something awful and I need grace, or they've done something awful and I need to understand it and extend them grace. And I think that's a a lovely picture that actually most of the musical Hamilton is about economic growth and democratic norms and enlightenment ideals. But in that song, mm. the centrality of Christianity and the fact that whatever else you can find from jobs and careers and political achievements and wars, the only place you find grace is in Christ. Mm. And Hamilton is in many ways a beautiful expression of that idea in spite of itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through this really wonderful book that you've written and help us all better understand a little bit more how we came to be the people that we are today. We thank appreciate you. It's it. been brilliant talking. Thank you. That was Andrew Wilson on the year 1776. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org/plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.